Good morning. Beautiful summer. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, are we good? Do I got enough people's attention to where I should start? Okay. So once again, thank you for the clock, guys. But funny thing happened on the way to this sermon. Okay. Uh, I went out and I, I was just checking to see what the next thing in Luke was to see if that's where the Lord wanted me to go or not. And it really triggered some thoughts to me that just came in an avalanche of stuff that was about the divisions that we're seeing all across the globe at this point. Divisions, it's not just in America, there's Brexit going on in England, there's you know, things in Germany, there's South America. Everywhere you go, there's just this tremendous division that's happening in our world right now. And that is having an effect, which I'll get to, right here in our church. Right here at Lake Sam. So both of those things concern me, but neither one of them concern me or I care about nearly as much as what's God doing? More accurately, what's he want us to do? Because when he's doing things like this, he's doing them for a reason. And if we get plugged into the reason, then we will be walking through it in a way that will take us out the other end much better than what we went in. So even though it looks difficult, God is the God of difficulty, right? He's the God that goes through the difficult and creates incredible things. He's the God that causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's who we serve, and that's what we're going to be doing today. So our preacher today is Larry Waddell. Larry, I adore you. you I, I think you've been here pretty much since the beginning for us at least, and I think you've been here longer than I have then, right? Not quite? Not quite, yeah. But I just wanna say, just God bless you, thank you. This is a, for somebody like you to be doing this, given the history we're gonna look at, thank you. You're the perfect person. So pray for the sermon, lift up another church. Thank you, Larry. Lord, we do just lift up um, the sermon today. Thank you that you've already been working um, in this church to, to get us to focus on you and your Thank you, Jesus. Um, and your plans and what you're doing uh, right now. And so as we as we go through this today, Lord God, I just ask that you would be in it in, and be in everyone's heart as, as they hear and listen. And uh, I guess also we slipped up uh, the city church, Lord God. Thank you, Pray Lord. that your spirit would be alive there. And, Thank you, uh, Lord. And uh, we ask that you bless them in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to look first at these, at the sermon, the, the, the scriptures that I got to. And in order to do that, I'm going to go back to the one that we did last week because I want you to see something about it, all right? Um, at daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. So look who it is. It's the elders of the people. It's the priests and the teachers of religious law. So this is a religious gathering. Jesus was led before this high council, and they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? Now, understand, Messiah has two dimensions to, oh, Christine Anderson, I love you. This is so great to have you here. I was supposed to say something, and I forgot. So it's wonderful. You're here for a couple of months now, right? What you are doing over there is spectacular. I cannot wait for us all to hear about this, okay? I am just so thrilled. Thank you, God. Okay, so um, back to the point. Uh, Jesus was led before the high council. Tell us about the Messiah. Messiah has in their minds a slight secular worldly connotation because he's the one who will deliver them from the Romans. But understand, the messianic concept itself is rooted in spirituality. This is the deliverer that comes from God and not necessarily from the Romans, from everything. It's God's representative. It's his new prophet. It's his new priest. It's his new, it's the promised and coming king and priest, okay? So there's a very much a religious underpinning of it. And this whole conversation is on the religious side of that discussion. Because he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. If I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, and then he uses the word son of man. Now, if you know your Old Testament prophecy and so on, son of man is a, is a trigger word. That'd be the wrong way to put it, but you get the point, okay? Son of man is like when you say that, you're making a claim for yourself. Something of this messianic character because it's been prophesied. And other prophets have used it. 
And so he says, son of man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. They all shouted. So you're claiming to be the son of God. See where they go? See where they go to? This is a spiritual issue. This is not a secular worldly issue. This is about you're claiming to be the son of God. What would that be if it were not true and he was claiming it? Blasphemy. Something they could kill you for. Something that their law required they kill you for. So, son of God, and he replied, you, it doesn't actually, it's not the law, it was their own laws that required it, but anyway, you say that I am, which is that way that he answers where he's saying yes, but he's not saying yes so as to cause further problem for himself, okay? He's not trying to get out of anything, he's doing the right thing here, and we talked about it last week. Why do we need other witnesses? They said, we himself have heard him say it. See, they're saying, that's it, that, he blasphemy, he should be killed. Now, here's the problem. They don't have the authority to kill anybody. The Jewish people did not have the right of capital punishment. The Romans who were over all of Israel and the surrounding region, the governor who was over that, the Romans took to themselves capital punishment and would not let anybody else practice it. In fact, even incarceration was an iffy matter. Like the Jews could incarcerate somebody, kinda, but if you really wanted to incarcerate somebody so as to get them out of the way, it would have to be a Roman thing. So the point is, when the, when the Jewish people say he's guilty of blasphemy, they can't do anything about it. So they go to the Roman governor to make a secular case. See, they have a religious issue. You're saying you're God or the son of God, but we're going to go after you on a secular worldly level. Watch this. The entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to share their case. Now watch how they state this. This isn't about spiritual things. This is, this man's been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. Why would that be a problem for the Roman governor? Because that's the main thing he's there to do. <laughs> he is not there, understand, the Roman governor is not there to get involved in the daily affairs of how the nation of Israel runs itself. They have their own religion. They have their own king, King Herod, who will get involved in this story next. They have their own governmental situation, all this kind of stuff. The Roman governor is there to basically do this. Make sure that people don't get so uppity that they quit paying their taxes. Because what we're doing is we've taken them over in order to extract wealth from them. The taxes in order to be richer ourselves and to control them and make sure that they never threaten us. Do you see it? So the first thing they go after is he's telling them not to pay their taxes. Now, let's just say something. Did he ever say that? Absolutely not. In fact, the one time that they challenged him on it, they said, look, should we pay taxes or not? And he said, well, whose face is on the coin? Well, Caesar. He says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. So he did not say don't pay their taxes, but nonetheless, that's what they're, they're accusing him of because they're trying to get the Roman governor to at least incarcerate him, but they're also going after killing him, and this is where they go, and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. Now, that is potentially something he has to pay attention to again, because Caesar isn't really a king anymore. At this point in time, he's been elevated to the point that he's deity, essentially. And so they don't really think of that as king, but they think of it as ruler. But a king would be a threat to a ruler, right? Except that every province that they're over, every nation that they're over has kings in it, kings that are under the Romans. So that's not that big of a deal to them. So watch what he does. This is, by the way, Pilate's a very clever guy. He knows that they're manipulating him. So Pilate asked them, now listen to what he says. Pilate asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? He doesn't say, are you a king that's a threat to Caesar? He knows what's going on. He'll say this later. But he says, are you king of the Jews? And his answer again is that you have said it, which is an affirmation without being a yes. Okay? But it's an affirmation. You've said it. And he's not denying it. And, and uh, Caesar, so now watch what Pilate does. He says, there's nothing wrong with this guy. You see that? I don't find anything wrong with what he's saying. This is not a matter for me. I exist here. You guys have this stuff. You're talking about this stuff. The problem is, at this level, they can't kill him. So he says, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent. But he's causing riots. Is he doing that? He is causing crowds. Crowds that the religious leaders would want to follow them. But he's not causing riots, is he? By his teaching, wherever he goes, all over Judea, Galilee, to Jerusalem. See, he's causing, he's causing you a problem and you just don't know it. 
See what I mean? Now, he'll give them way to Herod and so on. But here's the point. So I'm out on my walk. I'm reading this scripture. What comes flooding to my mind is the problem that we're having in our culture today as just people, first of all, but as Christians especially too. Not especially, I would say, but as Christians, we have another layer of the problem. In the world right now, the problem is right versus left. People seeing things one way and people seeing things another, and the twain are not meeting anymore, right? And there doesn't seem to be even any harmony possible. Literally, there isn't. Okay, and if you really get down to the brass tacks of what the issues are, that, there's a truth in that. And that, that's a truth that God wants us to see. We can, we can think, well, if we could just talk long enough, we'd come to a resolution on this. And the answer is yes, but not really. Now watch this. Um, just trust me on that. But see, here's the problem we have as Christians. We are in the world, but we're not of it. Let's rephrase that. How do we live out in this world what it is to be in this world, but not of it. We're of the kingdom of God. That's where we're born. That's where we're born again. This is the place from which we get everything. This is the one that trumps all of the world stuff. The spiritual is the one that's much more important, right? So how do we do this? In fact, let me just say it one more way. How do we get the things of this world right before the Lord? in a way that are consistent with the things of God and the kingdom of God. How do we get those things right in this world? All kinds of issues, immigration and foreign policy and, and welfare and all kinds of things, helps and so on. How do we get these things right so that we're doing right by the kingdom that we're of in the kingdom that we're in? How do we get it right? Got it? That's the question that we're facing as Christians, that we're facing as a culture. But as Christians, and that's who I'm talking to primarily, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, great to have you here. would love to talk to you and so on, but, but this is really what I'm doing right now is I'm talking about a plight that Christians find themselves in of this tension between being of a kingdom and in a kingdom, and how do you get it right when God has made some to see it one way and some to see it another, and that's even in Christianity. Okay? So if that's the case, and that's what we're dealing with, then remember something. The, the controlling verse of this entire church has always been. As we're talking about this issue, do not think that what I'm talking about right now is because we're having some political divide and I'm concerned about it. Do not think that. You have to understand, the controlling verse of my life is one with one another, one with God and one another that the world might know. That's my entire life. This has been going on since way before the last political divides that have come up. This is the existential question to me. First one, of course, is, is are you going to accept Jesus? The next one is, is how are you going to get along with your neighbor? Are you going to love him or are you going to love your neighbor? Are you going to be one with them? Are you going to let God do what it takes for you to become one, genuinely one as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are with one another? This is everything to me. And I think we're being given an opportunity to do an amazing thing. It looks really bad, but I actually have tremendous hope that God's doing something. So with that in mind, this is the, the verses, and this is the extended version of it, but this is Jesus's last prayer. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. See the nature of our oneness? It isn't a casual friendship. It's the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Now he's going to repeat that. Anytime God repeats himself, he's trying to make a point. I have given them the glory you gave me. This is, I always say this, you'll always hear it. The kind of oneness that God is going for cannot be done by two people on their own. It takes something from God, and I believe that's something to be the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to do a miraculous work to make two people one, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's two people in a church or whatever it is. It takes a miracle. It takes the power of God to bring two people together because just like in the, in the natural, and the natural is always a fingerprint, the closer that things come together in the natural on an atomic scale, the more they want to go apart. And it takes tremendous energy to get them to get together and to actually become one. 
Now, having said that, he keeps going. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Here's what he's saying. If the goal was people that are already like-minded being one, do you think that the world would look at that and say, oh, that's God? No, people of like mind form clubs and are really close to each other all the time. That is not what's being spoken about here. What's being spoken about is what happens when people are not in the same club, do not see the world the same way, are not even feeling the same way about things to the point that it feels like they want to go like this. And then God does a miracle and makes them like this. How do you do that? And when that happens, that's what the people of the world see. And they say, in the world, what we see is tremendous fragmentation. In God, we see him putting people together. Remember the early church. So together that people that had whatever they had, they gave to the church so that everybody had enough and no one had any lack. These are levels of oneness. These are levels of things that literally, the word says, people were afraid to join them but they sure admired them because they knew that what they were doing was better than what they had in their life. Now that made people know that God was doing something. You see it? That's what's being said in these verses. So this isn't a casual thing. This isn't an easy thing. This is the most difficult thing. That's why he left it as his final prayer to make them genuinely one when there's this entropy in the world that is, and sin that is separating them all the time. See it? Now, on a personal level, I'm going to tell you a little story, and I've gotten the person's permission to tell you this story. In fact, to the contrary of just permission, I got the blessing to do this. This person said, please do tell the story, and, and I'm good with it. And so there's a person that's in this church that has just left, and they have done so incredibly well. Okay, does everybody hear me saying that? The way that they have left has been with a lot of communication, a lot of love, a lot of everything. They have done so as well as I've seen anybody leave a situation in which they were having difficulty that I've ever seen. And this is a testament to the character. I'm not going to use the person's name, probably not even going to reveal gender, but I'm just, I'm, those of you who know I'm talking about know, and those who don't, it doesn't matter. But here's the point. This is a person who's been here for a long time, and for a long time, way before this last election cycle or Trump or Clinton or anything like that, for three and a half, four years now, we've been having an ongoing discussion about what does a liberal do at Lake Sam? Now, I've always insisted on something, and I believe it to be true because I've literally gone through the, the directory, and I know most everybody and most of your political leanings and so on, to the point that I could say, and we have traditionally been about 55, 45 conservative to liberal. That's what we were a few years ago. In the last three years or so, four years or so, but particularly picking up recently, the liberal population has dropped. And we're probably now at around 65, 35. Now, let me just show you something, okay? This is one of those conversations. Nobody, we're not, look, you'll see why that this is important in one second. But, but I just want to say, so this person, way before the political thing that's happened that's got everybody all exercised happened, this person said, so I'm sitting in meetings and people say things in a church. Most churches, when we're at 55, 45, even at 65, 35, we're, genuine, we're genuinely more liberal than most conservative churches are. I don't say conservative there in a religious sense. I mean that in a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church. They tend to be high percentage of conservatives. And there's a reason for that, and some of that is self-selection, and that's one of the things I'm going after. That's one of the things I've been going after for years because I've always known that there was a, it's just more comfortable to be in a club and a tribe that agrees with you about things. And so I fought very hard because I'm not that way. I, well, you'll see my profile here in a second, and I'm not hardcore conservative, even though I very much identify as that. 
And I've always said that. But the point is, is this person said, so I'm sitting in meetings and somebody will make an offhand comment that is not harmful. They do not mean it to be harmful. They do not mean it to be rude. They do not mean it to be anything. They just feel like they're in a community of their own. And so they say a comment that is politically tinged and has a particular leaning in it. And I don't agree with it. And I've encouraged that person for years to go ahead and speak up, but nobody wants to be the person that every time somebody says something, they bring it up. Oh, you hurt me. Oh, you said something. Oh, you said, see what I mean? Right? Nobody wants to be that person. And you shouldn't have to be that person. I, I've always maintained something about Lake Sam, and that's this. If there's 12 people lined up and you make a political comment, three of those, if it's a conservative comment, three of the people that are in that line of 12 are having to bite their tongue and not say something because they don't agree and they want to say something, but they don't want to be that person, so they don't say anything. And there's two to three more that maybe don't, maybe they get the point or they see it, maybe they agree or they don't agree or to some degree, but the point is, is they feel like that was an insensitive thing to say. So about half of the people that it's being said to are having some reaction to it, but what's happening in a practical manner, it just does, it's just life and how it goes, is that nobody's saying anything. Can everybody hear something right now? That is not a solution. Not saying anything is not a solution to a problem that exacerbates the problem. If you're the one that's always bringing it up and always being and having to do that, that also is not a proper solution, right? Because it puts too much weight on one person and it just makes everybody clam up. The real truth is what usually happens with people in these situations is everybody just clams up. Facebook, right now, go on and look and see how many of your friends who used to post about things politically are still posting. It's probably 20% or less of your friends. So 80% of them have just quit saying anything. That's just how it is. That's just what people do. We withdraw from the conflict. Here's how you can never get to be one. Withdraw from the conflict. You can also, by the way, damage oneness by being lead-footed, a bull in a china closet, right? So we've got to go about this thing, and that's what this sermon is about, is about how do we move forward in a way that is discerning, that is loving, that is respectful, but that is genuinely engaging a real issue. Because I made a mistake. I've always said that the fingerprint of God is God bringing people together in oneness. The fingerprint of Satan is separating people. Somebody just had to leave here. That was not on them. That was not Satan getting them. That was Satan taking advantage of a mistake I made. And I'm confessing to it right now. And I'm apologizing to this body for having failed to lead us in an area that was critical, that I'm going to show you, and that I lacked in my leadership in. And I feel horrible about it. And not only that, let me, while I'm at the apology game, let me say something that's important. Last week when I was talking, I started extemporaneously talking about this. I'm not talking about politics here. And then I wrapped myself around the branch. If you were here, you heard me say it. And I was saying some things. And I said something in that day that where this person was doing something on their last Sunday here. And I made it more difficult for them to be here in what I said. Now, it wasn't because, I want to make it clear, I, didn't, I was actually protecting them in my own mind but I got wrapped around the branch in a way to where it just was very uncomfortable for them and they said it was. And I apologized to this person directly and, and I'm just extremely sorry that I did that. It wasn't my intention, it doesn't matter, it's what I did. And so I'm apologizing for that. I don't get everything right, okay? But let me just show you what's going on and then what God's been doing so that we can see what he wants to do so that we get this righter. Because the fact of the matter is, this is important. This is what he said would be the greatest witness to the world. Father, make them one so that the world will know. We're not doing that right now, are we? And I don't just mean like Sam, I mean the church in general. Now watch. This is a timeline. Just took me forever to get that right. Okay, so... Here's a timeline. It starts in 2016, and the reason for that is because that's when God said he was withdrawing a degree of protection. I said God's hand is on us, protecting us. We've been making a lot of decisions that we're getting grace, that he's withdrawing his protection so that we now see the harm that we're causing and that we deal with it, okay? <clears throat> he wanted us to see more nearly the consequences of our actions so that we would do something about it, Okay? 
Now that was 2016, very beginning, January 2016. In August of 2016, Eric Lee took two sermons. Usually I'm gone much of August, not all but much. We'll be again this year. Eric Lee did two sermons that year that were two of the best sermons. I love them. But the first one, he talked about something and got feedback from everybody. And for the second one, he showed us this word picture. And I saw it when I was, on, when I was gone. And I saw that word picture and it made me cry. Because... I can't imagine a better word picture to be than that right there. The people of this church said that what we are, the bigger the word is, the more people said it. People said that we were family, supportive, real, safe, loving, growing, home, relaxed, non-judgmental, community evangelism, longevity, enfolding, mentoring, messy, diverse. See what I mean? I looked at that word picture and I just went, I could literally have not come up with one that I think reflected more what God wants to do in a church than that word picture right there. I cried when I saw it. But then, something happened. There was, in fact, a thing that started happening back in March when the primary started heating up. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger until November, I think it was second, wasn't it that year? November 2nd was the election that year. And that's when Trump won. And I want to be clear about something. Some people sitting in here in this body believe that God told them that Trump was going to win and he was going to do some things. I have no idea. We will see in the end if that's true or not. But the bottom line, for everybody else, that was a surprise. Nobody thought that he was going to win. Nobody thought that. Okay, that was a huge shock to the system. And at that moment in time, everything went The people that lost were just incredulous and offended and scared and genuinely fearful and all that. And you can argue about whether they should have been, but it doesn't matter because they were. And the people that won were dumbfounded and a little heavy-handed because the react in their reactions to other people's reactions. I say a little heavy-handed. I'm going to say that there was plenty of blame on both sides about what made everything worse. Having said that, Here's what I want to show you. Things got so bad that by the time we got to January of 2017, I started a sermon series that was led by the Lord where I started using this image that I used over and over and over again, a hammer smashing a mirror. And the point that I was making that whole time was this. God is the one who has driven the truck through not only our culture, but our churches. There are things that we got comfortable with that were not actually him. And his withdrawal was as much to correct us as it was to work on the culture. And that the fact of the matter was that God was smashing everything in order that we would reset everything because it needed to be rethought and reset. We needed to do that exercise. Now, I had somebody take Eric Lee's beautiful word picture and say, and that happened here too, where there was a fracturing of what that word picture was. And I've said this many times. I've said, we're not that word picture. Not like we were before that. But here's the key to it. I think God's the one who did that for a great reason. Watch this, okay? Look, how many of you have heard me talk about marriage before? Has everybody in here? right. Right? And whenever I talk about marriage, almost every single time I give you one principle that's the most important one, and it's not just for marriage, it's for everything. Our relationship with him and one another. And it goes like this. Love starts off, two people wandering around in the world, see each other, get kind of interested. Ah, but then they just tell them, and then they, 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 and then, they, and then this is the first stage of love. And you are connected. You don't know where one stops and the other starts. And you don't know, you know, they are one. And this one is a one of mostly sameness. Sure, of course, she likes chocolate and you like vanilla. But on the things that matter, one of the major things that draws us together is we have a morality. We have a way of seeing the world. We have some very essential things about us that we have found a mate in initially. And the first love is a love of same. And then what happens? You get married. And you get a honeymoon for however long you get it, but then you start discovering that there's 
<laughs> Not just one person in here, there's actually two. And you're going to have to work through this thing. And so I've talked about this phase where you're trying to change yourself and get better, and then this phase where you try and just deal with it another way. But then you get to the final phase, and you come into a totally different kind of love. And this is the kind of love that is so much richer, so much deeper, so much more wonderful, so much more beautiful, so much more life-giving, that even though that first kind of love is fantastic and people write songs about it, and it's beautiful and lovely to remember, the second kind of love is the one that is life. It's the one that you would never trade to go back to the first one for because this one is so much better. And this is not a love of sameness. This is a love precisely of difference. What has happened is you've, as you try to change yourself and try to change your mate, you, you finally discovered that you couldn't do it. In fact, you discovered that you were not something that they were, that you didn't realize how much they were that way. You just didn't see it. And then there comes a time at which not only do you see how different they are and what they really are, but you begin to realize that that was God's gift to you in order to complete you. That you need what they are. Need it. This is not a love of saying. This is a love of difference. You cannot be the other person, but you are all in for everything that they are and you know that you need them in your life. And that's the deeper kind of love that you get to in a marriage, in a regular relationship. And marriage is a type of a relationship for God with God. We start off by thinking he's like us. And then we come to discover one day that he's not like us at all and how badly we need every part of him. This is what God is doing. It's a love of difference. Having said that, you will hear me say all the time, and I think there's enough people that have done this, and I'm going to quiz and see if you guys get it. Marriage is about learning how to love and other. Marriage is about learning how to love and other. Somebody who's truly and totally, totally different than you. Now, can you see how that might fit in our political debate right now? There's a need for somebody who sees things differently than you do because your way of seeing it is incomplete. No matter how much you feel like it is everything and all, I'm going to prove to you right now that it isn't. But remember this. When we were talking about this way back in 2017, I started saying this. Eric Lee's image was God saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what God was saying to us. Having done that, I'm going to take you into something deeper. I'm going to take you into another kind of love. And in order to do that, there has to be this fractionalizing so that we can eventually find that deeper love. Now, I want you to see something now about what God did. And I'm about to use a concept which about... 35% of the people in this room right now are going to go, oh my God, I can't believe he's talking about this again. Okay? Another 20% are going to be going, this better be good. Okay? The rest of you are going to be okay with it. Let me speak to the ones that aren't okay with it. I need you to go with me on something because I need you to see the thing that I think God's trying to show us. I need you to trust me here for a second. Okay? In April, and I looked it up, in April of 2016, before the word picture, before anything happened, God brought us a book that I worked on for one full month as a series and that we have repeatedly come back to throughout the time. And it was The Righteous Mind. We started that in April of 2016 and God has been trying to get us to understand what it means. And here's the key, and this is where I made my mistake, to implement what it takes in order to take into ourselves what it means. Now watch what I'm saying here. Look at this. It's a landmark contribution to humanity's understanding of itself. Why good people, not good people on the left and bad people on the right, or bad people on the right and good people on the left, or I didn't say that right, but you get my point. Why good people are divided by politics and religion. Now understand, this is not a study of Americans. This comes from the research that has been being done for the last 50 years around the globe in every culture, even primitive tribes, where we find in every instance, we always find 
a division between what we would, in, we would label it right and left. Other people have other labels for it. But when we, go, when we group them the way that we're grouping them, there's always this division in the society. There's a tension in a society. Now, right there, think about something. What do I always say about Christianity? It's a, it's a, it's a uh, religion of paradoxes. And the way to resolve the paradox is not to resolve it to one side or the other. It's to live in the tension of both sides. So the point is, is God has put two sides and he wants us to live in the tension of both sides. And so what we've got is why people are divided by politics and religion. And here's what they find. You have to understand this. I think most people who critique this still don't quite understand what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Morality, your sense of morality. When you hear, sorry to use this, but this is one of the examples they use in the book. This is one of the tests that they do around the world. Okay, should a, should a, a brother and sister sleep together? Universally across the globe, virtually every single person's, they don't, even, they don't think about it. You didn't like rationalize. Well, what about that? Immediately you had an immediate gut reaction to it. Of course not. And then... You can explain to them, well, you know, what if, you know, well, see, the re you ask them why, and they say, oh, because they'll have genetic problems. And they'll say, turns out that's actually a very, very, very small percentage of times that that ever really happens. It does happen, but it's very, 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 very small. I'm still not for it. Okay, well, what if they're like two people on an island and nobody's ever going to catch them? And only, and it'll, it'll only be there for the, can they then? No, nope, still not for it. Okay, what if they're the last two people on earth and this is the only way to propagate the species. That's the one instance where you can get a majority of people in the world saying, I guess. <laughs> right? But they're still going, yuck. Well, we're not talking about the brain stuff, the rationality stuff. We're talking about the yuck. That's morality. We all have it. We all have what they call planks, six of them. And what happens is when a thought comes into our mind, it goes down into our heart, not our brain, into our heart, and it has an immediate reaction. That's our morality. That's our sense of what's right and wrong. And it comes before thought. And these planks look like this. These are the six planks. Care and harm. It means is somebody being harmed and we should take care of them. Liberty and oppression. It means somebody's being oppressed and we need to set them free. Cheating and fairness means you can't cheat, you gotta be fair. Loyalty and betrayal, you know, you don't betray people, you stay loyal to them. Authority and subversion, don't subvert authority, be respectful of the authority. And degradation or sanctity, don't degrade human beings, hold them up. Now there's a holiness aspect to this and the book actually came out with that one. But the point is, is here's the six planks. And I want you to picture this right now as piano keys. Okay? When you hear anything, it goes down into your heart and it hits whatever distribution of these six that you have because every single person does not, nobody looks like that. Nobody. People have different varying widths of each one of those. And when it hits those keys, one of them, it's like if you could play a chord where you could play two or three of the notes louder than the other notes. What would that sound like? See? So everybody has a chord that gets hit. That's their sense of morality. That's their sense of what's right and wrong. Now, here's the reason why a lot of liberals don't like this research. And again, I want to say, this was done by a liberal a deeply liberal person who to this day continues to be a deeply liberal person and says at the beginning of his book this, I am a researcher at a prestigious university and I go to conferences. At these conferences where we talk about morality, we are all liberal and we literally make jokes about conservatives that there's something wrong with their brains and their hearts, that they are damaged human beings. And we make jokes about it, but we believe it. We literally believe that there's something wrong with conservatives. They don't think right. So this is not coming from a conservative. 
This is coming from a liberal researcher who's saying that's how he feels. Now, what he has said about his own research is, he says, I am still deeply liberal because that's how I am made. He wouldn't use the word how God made me because he's not a Christian. I would say something, by the way. He says you cannot change your planks. I would say Christianity does, in fact, change things. Okay, so I'm gonna hold that out as a truth. But the bottom line is you still got your planks and you still got the way God made you and you still got the fact that around the world, whether you're a Christian or not, 50% of the people are liberal and 50% are conservative. That's just the way it is. So God is doing something and the point is, is again, like I say, see, liberals will be offended at this, but this is by a liberal saying, and I want, you to, I want to explain it deeper because you can understand where this isn't saying what you think it's saying, okay? This is what the average liberal looks like. Care and harm is really big. A liberty and oppression is really big. Fairness is about average. The three on the right are below average. But here's what I want you to understand. Whether you're conservative or liberal, you only get so many inches of planks, and it's how you distribute them. So the liberal is just distributing more weight, more planking to the care, harm, liberty, oppression. And they're taking it from loyalty, authority, and sanctity. That's, they're saying, this trumps that for me. You see it? So this is what happens, and this is what that looks like. And they say, they'll say, well, well they'll, particularly when you show this one, they say, well, that makes us look bad. But no, it's because you're misunderstanding what it is. First of all, it's the way that people are made. And I'm going to say something over and over and over again. God did not make a mistake with half the world. He did exactly the thing that he wanted done, and he made half the world this way. So if you're going to call it a mistake, you're going to be wrong about something. And in fact, if you go through the Bible, what would you say is the biggest thing that you learn, particularly as Christians, about God? What's the biggest single plank that's being done here? It's probably care harm, right? Now, you could argue that, and there are ways to argue it, but the point of the thing is, is mercy. His mercy, 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 mercy. How many times is that word used in Scripture? Mercy, 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 mercy. But when you do a conservative, it'll look like this. What they're saying is, look at these. They're all smaller, they're even, and they're, but they're smaller than average. I guess I can't say that that way. Anyway, but the point is they're even, okay? And so most people will look at that and say, well, it's better to be a conservative. That isn't true. And as long as you think about it that way, you're not gonna learn what you have to learn from it. It's just different. It doesn't make a person better. It just makes them feel differently. Let me show you what I'm talking about, okay? Here's liberal and conservative. Okay, now this is the example from the book. Okay, watch. A girl is pregnant in high school. What do we do? The liberal says, help. <laughs> you know, just get her, you know, bring her into your house. Help her. Give her money. Do what you got to do. Help her. Help. Is that bad? Of course not. Help her. Help her. But here's what the conservative does. See, now, the, the, the reaction in the liberal is you've got to help her. The conservative says this. They say, yes, you've got to help them, but you've got to be careful how you help them. Because, and then they'll use their, right, and they'll say, because, see, you could help this person in a way that would inadvertently, you didn't mean to do it, it was an unintended consequence where you would teach this, you would do something with this person where they never became on their own two feet, and even worse, they would teach their kids not to be able to stand on their own two feet, not to be able to do things and to be a victim of. Now, I say this, and you got to remember Tip O'Neill. Most of you aren't old enough to know who Tip O'Neill is, but Tip O'Neill was, was the most liberal guy in all of the Senate, and Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan got together, and here's why. Because Tip O'Neill said there is a culture of, there's a poverty cycle that happens, there's a welfare cycle that happens, and we create a dependency. And he, in his research, discovered it and got into the Senate in order to help stop that, in order to say, how do we help people in a way that doesn't end up hurting them? So... Let me take you to another issue, the border. Are we supposed to be taking babies and small children away from their mothers? Nobody says that. Nobody says that. The liberal impulse, the liberal reaction is, is but you say, but you see, you conservatives, what you say is, is you say, we've got to be careful how we do this 
Because if we do this the wrong way, we're going to encourage more mothers with small children to leave their family networks, their social networks, to come up here in dangerous journeys, have difficult things happen. Who knows how it's going to work out for them? There's all kinds of problems. We don't want to do things here that are causing more harm. That's what a conservative is always saying. I want to help, but I don't want to do it in a way that causes more harm. You see it? Now here's what a liberal says. That's disgusting because you're putting something ahead of just helping the child. Just help the stinking child. Just don't, don't separate the mom and the, and the child. Don't do that anymore. We all agree that that was a, that was a political thing. And it, Anyway, I'm not going to go into that too much more. But here's what I want to say. There's two ways of seeing this thing. I've tried to give it just a little bit so that you could taste and feel in your own hearts. I can, right now, there's a whole lot of heads that have dropped and you're not looking me in the eye anymore. You want to know why? Because you got your own thoughts going on and you're saying, he doesn't understand this and he doesn't get this and he doesn't get that and all that kind of stuff. And here's what I want to say. You're wrong. I do get it. I think about it all the time. I think about it a ton because I'm trying to figure out how do we live in this world when we're of a kingdom and a God who loves like he loves? How do we manifest that in this world? in a way that helps and in a way that doesn't have, that minimizes unintended consequences and so on. How do we do this? I think about this all the time. Thank you. Thank you. But here's the point that I'm trying to make right now because of what I think God's doing. So I need you, to, even if you didn't like what I just did, and there's plenty of people in here that didn't, I need, you to, I need you to come out of that moment for a second and I need you to see the point of this sermon, why God's having me talk about this. God did not make anyone average. He made every single person with a unique set of planks so that none of us alone is the full image of God. Here's, the where, here's where my heart beats. You want to know what I care about? This is what God looks like. There's his planks. He's every bit of everything. He cares about it all, all the way. Now, this is literally, you can go online and you can get yourself tested and it'll be in five dimensions, not six, although the newer tests are starting to show six. But here's how I test on five and then I extrapolate it to six. But this is me, and I, would, I was just gonna do width so that the slider width was smaller, but it just doesn't work as well as when I do height too, so you can see it real obviously. So the point is, care harm, when I say that I'm not, I'm not a classical pro conservative profile, I'm not. Care and harm is at the very top for me as is sanctity and degradation, not running people down. If you've, if, you've, if you've been around me, you know something about me. I care about individual people more than almost anything else. I don't want to see them harmed. We have a saying in our staff, and it goes like this, never put a program over a person. If our program is hurting because of somebody, we will, we will prioritize the human being, not the program. Most churches, most organizations will say that human being is in the way. We just need to move on. I can't. I'm the one that leaves the 99 to go after the one. That's how I'm built. That's how I do things. When you get to liberty and oppression and authority and subversion, I care about those things. But both of those things on the outside definitely trump them for me. These were very accurate results for me. When you get to fairness and cheating, I have a very interesting understanding of fairness. I don't want to talk about it now because then you'll like me less. <laughs> Loyalty and betrayal. I just, okay. I, but now watch. Do I look like God? I'm the image of God. Kinda. A little bit. But let's get real. If you add a liberal to me, the two of us, we look a lot more like God. And that's a little different than a classic definition, but you see that? And if you add a conservative to me, why then now we've covered in a whole lot more. And if you add somebody else to me, why then we've covered a whole lot more. And when you start adding other people to me and then other people and then other people, do you see what's happening here? We're starting to look like God because of our differences. Not because we're the same. We look like God because we found out how to become one with one another when we were in fact quite different from one another. 
And we learn how to honor that and how to need that and how to know. And this is the critical thing to it. I just don't think that you can ever get close to God. You're going to hear a fantastic sermon next week that is going to be, once again, God, I, I heard the sermon. It didn't even occur to me that my sermon was the perfect setup for what he's doing next week. But you're going to hear a really great sermon next week about these kinds of differences and so on. And, and what I want to say is, is we just have to understand something. Humility you just cannot get close to God unless you're humble. You just can't. Because as long as you got pride, God hates a haughty heart. As long as you got some pride in you, as long as you think you're right, then you are going to stand up in the face of God in a way that is going to be offensive to God. <laughs> you just have to bend your knee. <laughs> you have to bend your heart. You have to bend your life. You have to bring it all under him to where he can inform you about you. Because otherwise you're sitting there thinking that you're right and you're not. And you're hurting people. <laughs> and it's not okay. And we have to get to where we know that we're all hurting each other in all kinds of ways to where we humble ourselves and say, you gotta do a miracle and get us to be one. You gotta show me how I can appropriate that other person, how I can come into relationship with them in a way where I'm getting and understanding and seeing the value of how they see life, which I do not, and I never will, but I need to, and you've given me the ability to through them. We do not get to the image of God by carefully picking who our friends are. We get to the image of God by taking on all comers and understanding the miracle that God does with that and the way that he causes us to become much more than any of us could ever be in ourselves. This is the heartbeat of God in the culture. This is the heartbeat of God in the church. And until the church gets it right, the culture is gonna continue to suffer until the church shows a way of getting it right, the culture will be lacking because we will not be salting it. We will not be doing what he has instructed and given us the ability to be, which is one. God is teaching us how to love and other so that we may more fully image him. And in fact, as I've been saying, this is what it is to be one. It's that second kind. It's the kind where it's the difference. That's what it is. So here's what I want to say. Way back in April of 2016, God gave us a tool. The researcher himself, Height, says, it made a big difference in me as to how I saw conservatives because I no longer saw them as mentally defect. I simply saw them as different built different than me. And that I needed to have respect, I needed to try and understand, I needed to incorporate as much as I could the difference of what they're doing because they have a point or two. Just like I do for them. And Height said it caused him to be more generous. It caused him to be able to be in relationship. Didn't change him. But it caused him to think differently and to react differently and to be different. And so what I want to say is in 2006, God gave us righteous mind. And in 2017, when everything was blowing up at the early part, and the staff knows this and other people know this because I talked to a lot of people about it, I felt like we were supposed to do a forum discussion. And I didn't do it back then. Do you know why? Because things were so volatile, so high-pitched, tense, that my calculation was that the chances of somebody literally getting hurt was much greater than the chances of it actually creating something good. So I didn't do it then, and I think I was right not to do it then. And as conflict non-aversive as I am, in other words, I'm pretty comfortable with conflict. I grew up with five boys, all of us had rivers of living testosterone flowing out of us continually. <laughs> Confrontation was my life, and I'm extremely comfortable with it. And what ended up happening was, is that I nonetheless, in the fall of this year, 
I let it slip. And this is where my apology is to this congregation, to the body of Christ, to the Lord himself. In the fall of this year, I was like, I could do this now. But then I would look and, boy, you know, Trump would tweet something or something would happen or some decision would get made or some division lines would come up again and it was so heightened that I could still hide behind. Now listen to where I went. The first time I was right. The second time, and I, don't, I never thought about it this way when I do it. I'm not a coward. But I realized in retrospect that I kind of subtly, almost unconsciously hid behind. It's still going to go so poorly that I just can't. So I just didn't think about it very much and I didn't put enough prayer time into it. And if I had, listen, I would have not hurt people like I did by not doing something. When we don't do something, we're still doing something, aren't we? I made a decision to not have a forum and that hurt people. That hurt the people that were having to bite their tongue, that were not able to express themselves, that were feeling, you see it? I continue to hurt by not doing what I needed to do. So we're going to correct that now. It's July, this Thursday. I hope everybody comes. There's lots of people that are traveling and doing that kind of stuff. Do me a favor. Send this out to people. Tell them, I hope everybody comes. I don't think everybody's going to come. I think probably a tenth of the people in here are going to come. That's not to make you feel bad. If you don't want to come, don't come. I don't care. Okay? But I do hope that everybody comes, and I do want you to understand something. Here's what we're not going to talk about. How to fix immigration. We're not going to fix immigration in some hour and a half conversation at church. Okay? We're not going to talk about the issues particularly. What we're going to talk about is how would God want us to move forward so that we started evidencing and genuinely being more and more and more one. You see it? We may get into some, we may touch on some issues and so on because you got to have some practicality to it. It's still in the world. But that's not what the conversation is going to be about. And I love you, but I'm going to moderate because I feel the need to pastor this moment. That doesn't mean control. And it's not going to be about the issue, so it's not going to be a conservative, controlling, liberal dialogue. I'm going to be a pastor trying to work through with everybody who comes who cares about this. And by the way, if you're somebody who's on Facebook and you've quit posting because, you know, look, look whenever I post something on Facebook, two things happen. Okay, three things happen. One is I get a bunch of people that agree with me going, I love that and thanks for saying it. The second one is I get a bunch of people that don't agree with me just ripping me apart. And the third thing is I get people who do agree with me saying things that I don't agree with. So now I got to defend what I said and I got to work on the people that said things that I don't agree with. And, all of a sudden, and pretty soon I'm like, my God, I have a job. <laughs> you know, I can't spend five hours writing a Facebook post. You know, that three people are going to read because everybody else is tuned out of the thing, right? But you got to understand something. See, the way I am, to do nothing is not acceptable either. To not be posting is not okay. To not be active about this, to not be going after this is not okay. Because it's not okay. I'm not living in the world authentically because I'm not expressing things that I think need to be expressed and need to be said. And it's because that forum, that particular forum. By the way, let me say something. A lot of people are, are out of Facebook now. And if, if you're getting more peace from that, you're liking it more and all that kind of stuff, there's every reason to do that. I don't have any problem with this. It's not an advertisement for Facebook. But let me say something. Facebook, to their enormous credit, has in fact shut down the polarizing stuff that was going on during the election. They literally had their psychological things that they were doing to get you more interested by getting you inflamed about your own point, by having these fake news sources right and left, and by having people pump things up and so on. And it was, we really had a psychological experience in, uh, experiment in America before that election and after that was devastating. But I do want to say at this point in time, when I go back to Facebook, I see cat pictures and baby pictures and I get to catch up with my friends again and I'm not getting exercised and I'm not getting all stirred up to some political thing that made me hot out of the collar. So I just want to say, if you're not on there it, it, because you're just peaceful about it, by all means stay there. But if you're afraid of it, I just think it, they've really done a nice job of turning the ship. That was a pretty big ship to turn and they turned it pretty fast. Okay, so I know there's some people that work here. I'm not saying it because you work there. But I just, I just want to commend them. They did the right thing. They realized that what they'd done was harmful. And they've turned the ship. And they're working on it. So enough of that, right? Back to what we're doing. 
I want to talk about how to be one despite differences because I believe something. That God said to us in April, in August of 2016, well done and good and faithful servant, let me bring you into more. I really believe this discussion can be one if we all come to it with that expectation that we can get to a place where God will show us how to move forward. Because I can tell you right now, I do not know. I do not have a plan set out about here's how to manage and manipulate this conversation so that it comes out the way I want it to because I have no idea how to get there. I just want to get together with people that I love and that are friends and that I know we respect each other and we love each other and I want to have some of these conversations and start figuring out what can we be doing here? What is God trying to do? How's he trying to do it? And I want to do that with you. I want to do that as a family. Okay? I don't know it's going to come out of it. I don't know anything. The one thing I am asking for is, it's only current Lake Sam attenders right now. When we first were going to do it, I was going to open it up to everybody, and that was one of the problems that we had. But at this point in time, this is a family thing. So I'm asking you, if you're a member and you consider yourself to be a member of this family, then come. But we have a lot of what we would call extended family, people that don't necessarily come to church here, but that might want to come to something like this. Lovingly, I'm asking you, tell them not to this one maybe to one that we're going to have in the future. But right now, I'm trying to figure out how to get through it with people that I live with daily. How to get through it with people that I'm interacting with all the time. You see it? So could, you just, could we just agree to respect that? Because I'd like to start somewhere where I have the best chance of actually finding the Lord. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to resolve issues. I don't think they can be resolved. I really don't. I think that we have to do is live in the tension of this and this because that's where we're going to find the greatest chance of truth. And as soon as we get dogmatic about anything, we're going to lock it up. Okay? I just want to ask something. How many people would be interested in going to this? Think you might come? Wow. Can I just say thank you? And if you didn't, raise your hand. No problem. Okay? Don't feel bad. But that's, okay, maybe I'm in the right place. It makes me feel like maybe this was actually what I'm not supposed to do here. Okay? Uh, so thank you for that. That was very affirming to get that, that maybe other people care about this and would like to try and work through it. So, so I'm going to ask for something. For anybody that comes, pray a lot. Okay? Pray, and what we're going to be going after, like I say, pray that God shows us a way to move forward. I'm not trying to sweep differences under the rug. To the contrary, I'm trying to get them all out to where we can become the fullest image of God that we can possibly be. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I want to thank you for this family. I want to thank you for this group of people that you have put us in relationship with one another, that you've called us to this. I want to thank you, God, that you're doing things that only you can do and that I want to ask you to forgive me and I want to ask you that as we missed a moment throughout the fall, I'm begging you that you would cause that too. Any harm that was done in that, that you would cause it to work together for good for them and for us. And that you would just by grace cover us. Please. And God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, as we, as we do this, I'm asking you that you would find and show us how to start being this next level of one with one another one with you and one another. And do let the world see it, ultimately. Make us one. Reach down and pick up your cups, would you? In the lower cup, this body that was broken for us because of all the division, because of all the separation, when God, we have been a part of that. So we put our finger in there and we say, I repent, I'm acknowledging and I'm repenting. And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift this cup before the cross and we put Jesus in our sights. We look through the cup to the cross, through the broken to the cross where you heal. Heal us, Jesus. Take this cup together. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, I want you to take this communion, particularly this part of the communion. There is a life in God 
that is so much better than what any of us know. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift up this life that you have for us, God. We know we've fallen far short of it, but we know that everything we need is in it. And so we take it into ourselves saying, God, make your life be ever more fully the life I'm leading. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Ushers, can you come forward? Thank you. What do you think? We on a journey here? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we pour into your kingdom because we believe that your kingdom is the hope for the world. We know that your kingdom is what is eternal. Everything else is temporal. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we pour into your kingdom that your kingdom should ever more fully be what we're living in in this world. In Jesus' holy and precious name.